ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is It is Wednesday here on Hard to Paint with David Grubb, and that means just one thing, the Dome Patrol with my my man, my brother, my colleague, my friend, my homie, my, my, my just whatever. <laughs> All, of them. All of them. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Check the boxes. That's, that's it. Um, Ross Jackson. Ross, this is episode 101, and your name came up yesterday in episode 100. Uh, Dave DeCorvier and I. Um, oh, uh, man, my guy. <laughs> we, yeah, we were reminiscing about so much and about how all this stuff was very organic, that all these mm-hmm. things that happened, like Dave and I had no relationship prior mm-hmm. to him asking me to come on a couple times to talk basketball. And then next thing I know, I'm filling in hosting. Then months go right. by and I got my own show. And then you and I start up a relationship just happenstance out of kind of like, hey, I follow you. I see you. You know, hey, would right. you like to come on? And then the Dome Patrol becomes a thing. And, you know, right. and, he, and he was part of that. We had, a, we had our theme yep. stuff and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, <laughs> like, it's just, it was all so organic and unplanned. And just to see where we are um, in our relationships and, and, and the way our development from the first time we met to right. now, how, how much our careers have changed, how much our perspectives, how much our, it, but at the core of it, it's all that just, it just, it just feels like it was right. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so it's so wild, like the way that it all and it all continues to shift and change so quickly, too. But there are these things that remain constant throughout all of those shifts. And this relationship has definitely been one of those, uh, you know, D squared. That's definitely been a relationship that's re- that's remained like that. Like that has been even Chris Gordy, like Chris Gordy's over at Locked On now. Right. I brought him over to do Locked On Saints <laughs> and stuff. And so it's just like it's so crazy the way that it works out to where, you know, it goes from like, yo, let's you know get you on once a week to talk or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're hosting at the station in your case or, you know, you're sharing you know, daily, you know, we've got our, our, our podcast every week, you know, or our episode every week. Yeah. It's an incredible thing, man. And I think it's part of the resilience of like our market in particular, because our market is so somehow simultaneously undersaturated while also being oversaturated in certain aspects. And so like being a part of that and finding sort of like where those connections are, it's incredibly like, it's, it's awesome. Like it's, it's remarkably important. And probably one of my favorite parts about doing all this. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that we've all been able to continue to evolve is that when you talk about that saturation, I, you know, like I see it on all the, you know, just, it's just the podcast world. There are more and more every day and there are more and more independent thoughts and writers every day. So I think the way we've carved out a niche in that is by going left when everybody's going right. Right. Because everybody wants to be the voice of the fan. And I get that. Everybody wants to, because that's the most natural perspective to come from. Right. And we're kind of walking two different lines because mm-hmm. we deal with the analysis and we deal with the, the, the information, the game planning and all those things. But at the same time, we look at it in a real practical and honest manner as to how we, we, we look at the perception from that other side and try to be dual in that, but, and not play favorites, but right. always be honest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, that's one of my favorite, that's one of my favorite sort of, you know, whenever you start a show, you know, just kind of like behind the curtain, the biggest thing is kind of finding out what you're good at, right? Finding what, what you're good at, what you do well, and at the same time, how you utilize that to make you unique and whatever that might be. And so I think that like there's the for the fan, by the fan aspect that's very much like you mentioned, it's so easily accessible. It's it's not easily accessible in a, in a, in a uh, diminishing way, yeah. but it's, yeah, but it's just, you know, it's, it's the most familiar angle uh, for anybody that's coming in and starting for the first time. And then you kind of have to evolve from that to figure out, okay, what's the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. You use that angle first to figure out, okay, here's where, what I'm really comfortable talking about. Here's what I'm really good at, whatever that is. And then that buds and then that grows into something else, right? And so I think that we've sort of done a good job at figuring out what that is and then staying true to like we know what our listenership is we know what the fans like to hear we know what our market is and so how do we 
find our way to carve into that with what it is that we do at our best. Yep. And, and, and just, I think the respect that, that comes from that is from being honest and being, and never really just trying to, to say, oh, well, uh, you know, like I said, the thing that you've always been consistent about is it's not about being right. It's not about right. being right. It's, it's about making sure that we're, we're evaluating this as best we can. Yeah. yeah um, I don't want to be, I don't want to be right for me. I don't want to be right for us. I want to be right for them, for y'all yeah. that are listening. You know what I mean? That's what's important. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. all this other, like pat me on the back kind of stuff. And I, I have to give a shout out um, yesterday to a number of people um, just real quick, because mm-hmm. I was humbled um, when folks come at you and they say, um, and I got some great compliments and, and it was like, you know, David Grubb, one of the top that I've read nationally and locally less because whether you agree or disagree with him, he's knowledgeable, he's this, that, and other. And you get those same types of feedbacks to uh, feedback as well. And, and I think when you hear that, mm-hmm. the respect is the most important part of it. The like can change. People will like what you say. Right. They will dislike what you say. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the fact that they respect it and when people who, who are also your peers and people who, who make their living in the industry, coaches, players like that, mm-hmm. when they say whether or not I agree with your opinion, I respect where it comes from. That is always right. to me. The, like, I just want your respect. That's what I, I really want that because I think that brings. That's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that that respect comes from the individuals or that respect comes from the group. Right. In terms Mm -hmm. of like they acknowledge you as a part of this thing. You know what I mean? And and some of these other things. It's an incredible thing. And we respect the medium and we respect the people, our audience and we respect the people that we're talking about. Right. And we have fun doing it and we clown sometimes, but it's never personal. Never. No. And never mean spirited. Um, Before we get into the football I do want to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And um, as we go into the inauguration of, of a new president, um, there is, uh, first, I'll, I'll start with the good things. I feel mm-hmm. very glad to wake up and say, yes, um, a woman of color will be vice president. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a, a black woman who went to an HBCU, right. who, you know, and, and a, you know, Asian uh, descent as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a landmark. It is a it is a moment in history, in that regard. And yet, I think a lot of us as Black Americans still feel like you did that day twelve years ago, when Barack and Michelle Obama were walking through the streets of Washington D.C. and wondering if they were going to make it right to the White House, if that was going to be okay. Yeah. Now, there is clearly so much protection today and we have National Guardsmen sleeping, you know, in, in the Capitol. And right. we have people yesterday pulling guardsmen and soldiers because of their connections and other stuff. And that same fear is there. And it's hard. I, I want to have joy today. But more than anything, it feels like I have relief that the last four years politically are over, but that knowledge to me of that it's not over in the streets. It's not over in the municipalities. It's not over in the local ballot boxes because those people, they have have now created an entire ecosystem of other people like that who now feel emboldened to go in and they are getting elected and sitting in Congress right now Yep. sitting in mayor's offices and police off chief's offices and all these things around the country. And it's just, are we dialing it back or are we moving forward? And that's always the question in my mind, particularly as a black man. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I always expect this is the, the way I've always looked at it, is that every, every four years, things just look different. That's really all that it is. Like most of the same things remain and the experiences don't often change all that other stuff. Like the, the individual experience of, uh, of an oppressed population within a government that is built to oppress it will only continue to be oppressed. Like that is, that's all that it will be. It's just that it'll look a little different. Like it might be a little quieter for the next four years, right? It might be a little bit, uh, less, uh, what sort of looking for, um, might be a little bit less, uh, you know, out there, 
for the next for the next four years. Overt. It might be a little less overt for the next More next polite. couple of years or something like that. It goes like polite. polite. Right. Yes. Right. Genteel. Yeah. It's like racism. Right. It's racism Diet with racism. a pinky up. Like that's all it yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's all it's gonna be. And that's <laughs> and that's fine. You know? And so it's just about, you know, we have to sort of retool like we as black men, black people and and I only speak about black people because that's the experience I know, right? I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody else's experience. I don't want to co-opt anybody else's experience. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I can speak from my vantage point. And from my vantage point, it has always been just like Michelle Alexander's book where she wrote about the new Jim Crow, that things are only reformed, things are, are, are only you know made to look different. It's cosmetic changes. Policy changes are still hard to come by. You know, we still erase the full title of the Million Man March that was supposed to be for, you know, for work and uh, and political equality. But we just call it the Million Man March. You know what I mean? Like it's these it's it's these erasures. It's all these things that are, you know, built in protecting a certain status quo. And Joe Biden is not going to be the figure of radical change. Kamala Harris is not going to be the figure of radical change, not in the vice president position. And so it will be very interesting to see what the next four years look like. There's a lot of big plans upcoming for the first 10 days. We'll see how much of that, you know, does. Because remember, there's supposed to be big plans for Obama's presidency, too, when he had blue in the House and blue in the Senate and wasn't able to get anything done with dreamers and immigration reform because of his focus on health care. That's not a it's not an it, 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 it's it's hard to focus in more than one place at a time when you're trying to drive policy and get congressional approval and, and all these other things. It's tough. It's a tough you know, it's not an easy job like I would never want it, no. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it, 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 it. But it's also not an easy job navigating from where we are either. So my my expectations are tempered. Uh, my optimism is limited to the fact that things might adjust, but not necessarily change. And I'm okay with that. Like, that's just, that's, that's part of navigating life as a black person. You just kind of have to understand like, what, what are the obstacles I have to navigate? I got both my legs. Great. I'm gonna navigate them. You know it's a I mean? different level of Mario. Like yeah. now it's the, maybe the flames aren't swinging. You know, right. and, the, and stuff, but this time you gotta watch out for the the, the little turtles, the tur- turtles that yeah. you jump on top of. It's like you just you just yeah. changing the adversary. Yeah, the game is and, still jumping over stuff and hiding. Yeah. But yeah. And every time, and every time you get a gold coin, they take a little bit of it too. Like that's the other added level, you know. They yeah. take a little bit of it, you know. At the end of the level, credit score, Mario's credit score is bad. Never goes you know up. What I mean? Never goes up. Yeah. The never flag, you up. can hit the top of the flagpole, but the flag will always start in the middle and drop down, so you never get the real bonus. The flag the goes a little bonus. bit higher. Yeah, yeah like, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, because as we look at this week in a whole, it's the embodiment of this. It, it, it's it's insane, almost in the duality of this inauguration falling in the same week as Martin Luther King's birthday uh, mm-hmm. the observance of it. Right. Um, and then having what I thought was embarrassing displays by, by many government agencies and businesses, mm-hmm. um, which we see every year on every year, you know, okay, every year. Yeah. Politicians. It's, it's tradition. It's, it's, it's just people who, <laughs> who have no idea what they're doing. Right. But you know, my example of this, and I just want to see how you felt about it. Mm-hmm. The Pelicans had their diversity and inclusion team mm. and their task as the diversity inclusion team to honor the legacy of Martin Luther King was to have a majority of black people. There were seven people in the pictures. Two of them were white. Five mm-hmm. of them were black or it may have been four, three, but the majority of them were black. Majority of them were female mm-hmm. cleaning up trash on mm-hmm. MLK Boulevard. And yes, those are fine service projects, but that is not honoring the legacy that's not what he was fighting for. He wasn't saying we need cleaner streets. That's right. not what he's saying. There's no, I don't remember that part is pick up the trash on the median. I don't right. remember. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that was right. not the big picture items that he was focused on. Right. And I think that we downplay it and we, uh, and you know, it's commodified and sanitized and washed down. And then we see the NFL go through this hiring cycle and you only have two oh. black coaches the league we're five years removed from a study that said that there was institutionalized bias in the hiring of coaches and yet we have fewer black coaches than we had five years ago in all levels um we're not even we're not even seeing black coaches get to get to chance to interview like right. for, by and large Byron Lovewich didn't hasn't had any interviews we know that 
Um, Raheem Morris didn't get a real interview for Atlanta's job. We know right. that, you know, um, the, that what I think Eric Bieniemy just got a phone interview, a Zoom interview. They allowed a, fo- a Zoom interview with the Texans. So right. it's like you're not even get the interviews. The rules always change as to what the requirements are. We see places, hey, kudos to Dan Campbell getting the job. Shout out. Great, dude. Get your job. Right. But he has no better case. There's not a, there's not a way you can tell me he has a better case than Eric Bieniemy to be a head coach. No, no. It's not no. possible. Because no. if you're saying what... Bieniemy don't call plays, what play has Dan Campbell ever called? Right. The only the only thing that they're going to point to is the fact that Dan Campbell has head coaching experience. But remember, that was twelve games in 2015 as an interim head coach, where he went five and seven. That's it. Maybe the one thing that does work in Dan Campbell's position is because of the fact that he was assistant head coach with the New Orleans Saints. He did work more closely with Mickey Loomis as a general manager. But that's not a real reason. Like that's not like I'm mentioning that because Rob Ford said that they wanted somebody that had head coaching experience and that had worked closely with the general manager. But that's after the fact. Like now you're just moving goalposts. And this is something that we see every single season and everything. Like go get the guy that's going to be best for your team. And I do think Dan Campbell, like you said, shout out to him. Like he's going to be a good head coach in terms of his ability to build teams and build community and build culture. But is he going to be the guy that's going to create and bring in an evolutionary offensive or revolutionary offensive system or something that's going to keep you relevant in the NFL for seven to 10 years? No. He's probably not going to be that guy. No offense to him, but that's just not what his role is. That's why he brought Aaron. You know, that's why he's trying to bring Aaron Glenn with him. He needs the X's and O's guys to do all of that other stuff while he is sort of the cultural figurehead, basically, for the organization, which I understand the value in that. We talked about that with um, the Pelicans when they were mm-hmm. looking for their new head coach, right? Do they want somebody that's going to help to in, in player progression and team building, or do we want somebody that's going to immediately make them championship relevant, right? Or that's sure. going to be a championship level coach made a little bit more sense to go with somebody that was going to be maybe more team player progression focused that effectively feels like what the uh, what the what the lines are doing but I mean you could do that with Eric Bieniemy too you can do that with some of these other you could do that with the, I mean hell you could do that with the Marvin Lewis if you need like there are still like right. some, like you, Anthony Lynn doesn't get a second chance is you know has experience with a general manager Anthony Lynn. right Right, yeah, Anthony Lynn's a great example. Anthony Lynn's going to be probably reduced to an offensive coordinator role eventually. Look at Lovey Smith. Lovey Smith, He's the dude who took the team to a Super Bowl with Rex Grossman as his quarterback. Right. Never was given real legitimate offensive talent. He didn't draft. He didn't have the control of the draft in Chicago. And we know Chicago's had terrible general managers for years. The same Chicago team and the hirings that they've made since said that they were getting offensive gurus, right? And neither of them have worked. Nobody since Lovey Smith has been gone has mm-hmm. worked as an offensive mind. So the things that they said that they didn't like about Lovey, they didn't fix, they didn't find, right. and nobody else in the NFL has deemed him really worthy of getting another shot. It's like No, because he didn't get a real shot in, in Tampa. No. Tampa told him go out there and lose so we can get this number one pick and draft Jameis Winston. And then they drafted Jameis Winston and got rid of Lovey. <laughs> like they held Lovey accountable. And then kept your cutter, and Cutter didn't make it any better. And that's the whole thing. Is like you ju- they will judge the coach on one thing and say these are the things, but then you give that job to the guy who was failing underneath the head coach who you said wasn't good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, like the, the there's right. no logic to the NFL hiring process other than to say that coaches that ownership cannot get past it's the stuff that went on that that's going on in Houston with Deshaun Watson. And we know that there are racial elements to it and cultural elements to it. Um, But still, where would you, in what other place would you see the franchise quarterback when he says, all I want you to do is talk to some people. You don't have to hire any of these people, but I'm giving you a list and I'd like you to talk to them. And they don't call a single one. If Drew Brees had said that to Mickey Loomis, do you think Mickey Loomis would have listened I think you would have. Do you yeah. think that if, if, if Tom Brady says that, if this is your franchise court, if Patrick Mahomes last year said, I want you to go get Clyde Edwards Hilaire, and that's what they did. So for Houston not to even set, not to even make a phone call, right. to not do a cursory phone call on behalf of your franchise quarterback and say, we talked to him, it just didn't work, at least yeah. humor him, and they won't even do that. Right. And this is and this is why this is why the head coaching and general management 
thing, you know, jobs are important. But what's most important is the lack of is is the sterilization and the homogenization of team ownership. That's one of the biggest things because it doesn't you know the players can want what they want, the fans can want what they want, the analysts can want what we want. It doesn't matter because it comes down to what the owners want and what the owners believe is best for this thing that they you know that makes them millions and millions of dollars. And what they believe is different than what many of us believe. And so when you look at this, things like that, it's where Deshaun Watson said, "Hey, I wanted to, I want you to talk to these folks." It don't matter. But if that was a younger owner or a minority owner, perhaps, then you probably would have gotten a different situation out of that. You know what I mean? And so, like, we can we can want to improve in terms of, you know, what the representation is on the sideline with beyond just the players, what the representation is in the front office. But until the ownership looks different, I don't know how much progress we're actually able to or until the ownership is forced to actually truly take real action or, or real action is taken against owners then we won't see anything change because all these band-aid policies of, hey, if you develop, you know, these minority candidates, you'll get some draft picks that only potentially hinders the hiring process by these other teams. It's not a coincidence to me that they instituted that rule. And so far, we've seen one example of it, which is Terry Fontenot getting hired by the Atlanta Falcons. And then you look at um, you look at the, the like you mentioned the drop off in terms of head coaches that remain in the NFL after this the lack of representation in terms of the actual real opportunities for those black head coaches to get opportunities this has done nothing but essentially stand in the way for the most part and then on top of that you roll in you know the the rest of the hiring cycle everything else around it and then you know you say oh, well now you have to interview two black uh, you know, two two non-white or two non-male uh, candidates or two black candidates to meet the Rooney Rule. It's all band-aid policies. It's no, it's no, it's it's no actual action around any of it. No, and and, and again, congratulations to Terry Fontenot for, for yeah, getting that job. Um, you know, we talked about the potential of losing both of those guys um, on this podcast before uh, losing uh, Terry Fontenot and. Um, now I don't see again. Oh, Jeff Ireland. Jeff mm-hmm. Ireland. Um, and we thought, I, I mean, I thought Jeff Ireland was more likely because again, there's somebody who definitely wants to be a GM again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you're fond of, you have to take a job when these, these things, uh, have to. To try. he has no yeah. choice in it. If it's offered, you got to take it. Cause there yeah. may never be a second call. Right. Right. Like you have to, you have to do it when it's there. And, uh, you know, I'll be interested to see, you know, that is a team that's going to undergo some big changes over the next couple of years. And I'll be interested to see. I imagine he's 40 years old. He's black. I imagine his leash is going to be very short. I want to know. I'm curious to see whether or not the Atlanta Falcons actually give him the reins, first of all, but then also give him an opportunity to see this through as opposed to expecting immediate action from him. And then moving on from I mean, when they, they hired their coach before they hired him, which is never in my mind, a good thing to do because I, I don't know if their philosophies mix. I mean, I'm sure they right. had to do some of that in the, in the, the interview process afterwards, but mm-hmm. what's Terry really going to say, you know what I mean? Like right. you can't, you can't say, I don't want this guy after I met him. He's, he's right. already under contract. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very wild situation around the NFL. It's not getting better. It's actually only getting worse, but it's interesting because everyone is talking about it like it's getting better, even though the numbers are dwindling. And I don't know if maybe it is the, oh, well, now there's a black GM that just got hired in Terry Fontenot. I don't know if that's supposed to make up for it. <laughs> but it doesn't really change the numbers because the Lions had a black GM in, right. in, 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 and he got fired. So it's not like you sold the numbers still. Basically. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. That's that's the thing that's so so strange to me is that we haven't actually seen any progress in this, but it's being talked about or being accepted as if there is progress in it. And I don't I don't understand it. And I think that I think that it's even tougher for Saints fans to understand specifically because they're watching Terry Fontenot get hired away. They're watching Aaron Glenn probably taking a defensive coordinator position. Like they're seeing because the Saints coaching staff in particular does have 
a good amount of diversity in it. So they're seeing movement when it comes to non-white, non-males in the organization, and they have a female owner, and, 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 and. And so I think that it's tough to see from sort of the insular perspective of like, but that's not representative of what's actually happening around the NFL. Not in light, in the least. Um, I don't want to, like I said, I told you I didn't want to dwell a whole bunch on the game, but I do want to dwell on one topic related to Mm -hmm. the game, and that's the impact of injuries. Yeah. Because that's going to be the thing that ultimately um, we discuss in a number of ways. Before the game, the injuries that we were most concerned about, and you tweeted about this, was the loss of Latavius Murray and Taysom Hill in short-yarded situations. Before that even presented itself, for kickoff, you had talked about this. Saints' first two possessions in the red zone, failed to convert. Taysom Hill, one of their best red zone performers. Latavius Murray, a chain mover, a guy who, right. gets, who falls ahead and gives you two and a half yards. Um, let's talk about their loss first and how much do you think it impacted the Saints offensive performance? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the elements that you just described absolutely in the red zone as well as in the, those short yarded situations as we as we highlighted before the game. I think that that's a huge that was a huge blow to them. You have Deontay Harris starting you off in the red zone with his first return. You come up with three points there. You have him returning one for a touchdown that gets called back, but that still puts you in good field position to where you get another red zone possession. You walk away with three points from that. That's a potential 14 to zero opening, very akin to week nine uh, mentality shift, everything like that. But you aren't able to cash in in those short yardage and red zone situations. So I think that from the very jump, you saw how the 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 First of all, the dependence on Taysom Hill is one conversation in the red zone. The other part of it is the 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 loss of Taysom Hill and Latavius Murray. The other place that you saw the loss of Latavius Murray was in pass protection. A lot of tight ends having to stay in to block, a lot of six offensive linemen, which isn't entirely out of the ordinary for the Saints, but even still, you know, Drew Brees was only only faced nine dropbacks under pressure but they were meaningful dropbacks uh, in each one of those situations. And so you wonder how much having Latavius Murray in, who's a great pass protector, would have helped you in some of those specific situations or would have freed up other folks so that instead of seeing binary routes run, you would have seen three, four route, you know, full on, pairs of route concepts like you usually see with Drew Brees. Those things were present, but they weren't always present at key times because some of those tight ends had to stay in to help block. Or your personnel was you know, jumboed by having a sixth offensive lineman and therefore you're missing another skill position player on the field in a, in, a, in a unique situation. And so I think that those are probably the places where you saw them struggle the most with Latavius Murray in particular, as well as Taysom Hill being out. And you also just miss the, the game-changing pace that Taysom Hill brings you because it does add another element to the game. It adds another layer. You know, it's a package of six, seven, eight, nine plays that he would usually come in and be a part of or, or run at quarterback. But then all of the plays that he's usually a part of in line and as a receiver and in the backfield that you just missed out on. And you got the one big, you know, pace changing play from Jameis Winston. And that was it. You know, there aren't full packages for Jameis Winston. They just put him in. Jameis ain't going to run. You ain't going to have Jameis right. out there running bootlegs. That, right. That's not no. Him. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you don't have you didn't have the same change of pace situation that you saw as great as it was to see Jameis Winston throw a touchdown against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the playoffs, which I feel like was a really good show by the new Orleans saints to essentially tell Jameis, like you have a place here and we don't want you to forget that before you hit free agency next week. Um, but, yeah. or, you know, in March, uh, right. I thought that was a nice showing by them, but you know, you don't have enough of those plays to make a difference. Like you usually would with a, with a Taysom Hill in the game. Um, defensively, um, it did not look like Trey Hendrickson was Trey Hendrickson. Right. Um, there were a number of reasons, too. The defensive line as a whole did not play well. Cam Jordan mm-hmm. did not have a strong game. Um, mm-hmm. Marcus Davenport did not have a strong game. Uh, just the D-line in general, was it, it wasn't at its best. It did have moments. And, and it's cool. it was yeah. going to have some opportunities against Tampa. You, we knew that going in because Tampa had injuries on its offensive line. Uh, and the Saints are, are one of the best pressure teams around. But when they needed it, when they needed to get deep, it, they weren't there. That was the big thing. You saw the pressure early on in the game. And we've talked about how important pressure gets later into games. Late in the game, you didn't see that. Tristan Wurst had a fantastic game up against Cam Jordan. He played outstanding. 
Um, you know, Trey Hendrickson didn't win a ton in his match. I think he only had one pressure. The Saints only had seven total in this game with the one sack from Demario Davis. And that sack from Demario Davis was also a pressure by Marcus Davenport. So a couple of those things also doubled up. Um, I think David Onyemata was probably your most consistently successful defensive lineman in the pass rush. Uh, but outside of that, you didn't really see a ton when it came to what this defensive line, the expectation of what this defensive line was supposed to be, based upon what we had seen three sacks in each of the two games during the regular season. They didn't live up to that as much where they, you know, only again, they only had pressure on seven plays in this one. And it worked. I mean, Tom Brady and those was only one out of the six passes that he threw. Uh, and then the one sack. So it worked when it was there. It just wasn't consistent enough. And it certainly wasn't consistent late. Yes. And and timeliness is is the most important thing in the mm. postseason. It's when do things happen? Right. Um, uh, Demario Davis's absence was felt. I mean, yeah. not Demario Davis. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, oh, Quan Alexander. Uh, Quan Alexander's, Alexander's yeah. absence was felt. Uh, Alex Anzalone was solid, but there were a couple of plays where you could clearly see that if Quan were in that spot, something wouldn't have happened. Particularly, yeah. you think about a couple of plays that Leonard Fournette made out of the backfield. Um, yeah. Leonard Fournette not known as a receiving back at all, right. at all. Right. And yet he's getting five catches. Um, I thought that that's, that was a spot where Anzalone, uh, there, were, there were moments where he overplayed a couple of things mm-hmm. um, and, and his reactions were just off. Uh, he was not the missile that Quan Alexander had we had become accustomed to seeing. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest plays that stands out to me was a late third down conversion to Rob Gronkowski on the right sideline. Oh, that where, one was bad. Yeah, I mean, that was like Anzalone didn't make any contact with him at the line of scrimmage, which is what you saw a lot of, a lot of chipping throughout this game, which is one of the reasons why the chippiness was there, but no contact with him off the line of scrimmage. And then he kind of breaks out of his route. And then the reaction time was just way too late. Didn't follow him out to the outside. He kind of just hung there for a second and then reacted. That's the stuff that you didn't see from Quan Alexander. His ability to diagnose, click, and react are so, so, so valuable in those situations. You just didn't have that from you know Alex Anzalone. That's the same route that many tight ends had run against Quan Alexander several times throughout the regular season where Quan Alexander almost came up with interceptions in the sideline because he was making diving stops and, and, and you know those big plays. You didn't see that from Alex Anzalone. It wasn't a great showing for him at all. I think he struggled a ton in that game. Uh, I think that Pro Football Focus actually graded him the lowest uh, player in terms of the performances during the game. Um, yeah, it was not a great game for him, and and that was absolutely a spot where Quan Alexander would have been of value, but was unavailable. And on top of all that, the energy too. I mean, the energy yes. over on the defensive side felt. I don't know about maybe uh, maybe I'm you know projecting, but I felt like it was low from the very beginning. It I think was. That this was a, yeah. I think this was another situation to where the Saints' offense came out flat, but also the defense came out didn't really have the energy you would usually see. And Quan Alexander is usually a really, really big part of that. There was the moment too, to where CJ Gardner Johnson went down for a little while. He went back into the game. He would seem to be fine, but you know, that was another moment to where you lost a little bit of energy there. And then just the dejected nature that comes from having to take the field sooner than you expect because of four turnovers. It's tough to build energy when that continues to happen. When you're not hitting the field because the offense just scored a touchdown or just put points on the board, you're hitting the field because the offense gave it away again, then it makes it really, really tough to go out there and be able to maintain that energy. And that's where a guy who is like perpetually energetic, like Quan Alexander, is so valuable. Before we focus on the two main guys, I want to mm-hmm. address that energy thing. Um, when they did the pregame huddle, right, and they showed that, I honestly, whenever there were people who were tweeting, you know, ready to run through brick walls, I didn't feel it. It did, I, and, I, and I'm not saying this in hindsight. I'm saying no, in the no, no. moment. watching it it didn't feel it felt stale it felt like those things had been said before it felt like you had heard that speech over and over again and it was kind of like the way people started to talk about ray lewis at the end of his career in baltimore where joe flack was like there were times we were just tuning out ray because he was just speaking gibberish (laughs) but at the because i mean but you had enough guys around those guys you know the ed reeds and all that who didn't need Ray Lewis to get them jacked? That's what they were. That's what they lived. You know what I mean? They were pro. Right. The Ravens were a pro team across the board, and they and it was a super. I mean, you know, you get to that. But for the Saints, yeah. it felt yeah. like 
I felt like there was a sense of dread, you know, like that, that, that because we had mm-hmm. talked so much about the finality of it, that honestly, some of that finality yeah. was creeping in onto the field before the game started. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's another conversation too, to where it's like, even if that pregame huddle does work, there's another conversation to maintaining it over the course of yeah. 60 minutes of, of gameplay. Yes. Right. And you know, like that's, that's like for anybody that's been on a football field, that's hard, especially if it's a tight game or if you're losing, like it's hard to maintain that energy and keep in, you know, keep locked in in that How way. Much it drops off from, oh. the, from the first 10 minutes for players, like right. just to, to have the intensity that you've worked your body up to, coming out of the tunnel and that first couple series. And then there's just a natural drop off of adrenaline and you have to keep yourself back up. And like you said, the lack of success, those other things certainly contribute to that. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff is incalculably important to, to that energy. And, And, you know, when you look at what the saints, you know, where they struggled in this game in terms of longevity, everything that, like it all points to that. It all points to that. The last two guys, we'll do Mike Thomas first. And mm-hmm. um, it comes out Michael Thomas needs surgery on his ankle, um, that he came out he wanted to play for Drew. I am never a fan of getting these reports after the fact because right. it always feels like we're going to excuse something because, oh, well, I know he was injured. Well, if you, again, if you're there's either hurt or injured, you can either play or you can't. And once you go out there, you're judged by you stepped on the field and the standard that you set as a player. Right. Michael Thomas ends up with zero catches, very few targets um, for, again, multiple reasons. But ultimately, in a game where he needed to show up, he he did not produce. And I don't think we can pin that on those injuries. Everything he did was to be ready for this game, um, and he wasn't ready. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, look, I think that you're going to see criticism of you're going to see criticism when you do see criticism. You'll see it from two different angles when it comes to that. Uh, You'll see it to the Michael Thomas angle uh, to where, you know, whatever, bro, like the production wasn't there. The production wasn't there. But also you'll see it from the Saints perspective, because I also hate seeing these reports to where players are being told we're better with you than without you like we're better with 70 percent of you than zero i hate seeing that because mm-hmm. like you know we we saw how that affected delvin bro's career yep. we saw how you know that doesn't that's not I, I hate those reports i hate those reports because the best the better choice is just to rest the guy like you know what else is better than 70 percent of them 90 percent of them like there there are ways or- to make better choices you know I, mean, I mean, if it's another you know. week that he needed, then you needed to play for that because you've done it. Right. That's the thing is you, you've you done this before. You've you've had game plans without him that have been successful. Right. And you you apparently had developed, okay, at least you have Emmanuel Sanders, Marquez Callaway, and uh, Traquan Smith healthy. Right. All three of those guys are healthy. Right. And in a normal yeah, game, you, you would expect that should be enough. Yeah. And I get the idea that, look, they wanted him back for the playoffs, but I mean, this this is a hindsight thing, but did they need him against Chicago? You know what I mean? Like, it's those kinds of things that are that are interesting to me about, like, all right, how much of a difference would that have made? And it's hard to go back and play what if and all the other stuff. I know it was a weird game. Yeah, it's tough to do that. But, you know, at the same time, the decisions have to be made for the betterment of the team as a whole which includes that individual player like that individual player is part of that team and so i i hate seeing reports like that to where it's like nah we need you on the field because 70 percent of you is better than zero percent because that's 70 percent if you put somebody out there at 70 percent that can turn into zero percent out of necessity yeah right like that can turn into zero percent out of necessity real quick no exactly right exactly right and and i think that was evidenced in this game against tampa bay for not only michael thomas but also drew Brees playing through injuries Mm -hmm. um and the the thing that i don't also like seeing is is people saying well okay now it's time to trade mike thomas okay yeah no that's 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 not how this works no that's not how this works at all if again if you want to have the conversation about how he was handled and whether or not that was the thing right but you didn't sign michael thomas to the contract you did to say after one year well we maxed our value on that let's move on no it the saints can't do that and no one is going to do that for them i'll tell you that Right. right now there's not a team in the nfl that will do that job 
for them and take Michael Thomas no, like, at that cost. Yeah, yeah. There's no like there's there's very little returns on a trade that sends Michael Thomas out without other assets that is worth it. Um, you would have to pay another team essentially to take Michael Thomas at that point because and you'd have to take such a huge hit. That's twenty million dollars next year that is already on the books that at a position where you need that player because you're going to have a new quarterback more than likely at that, you know, in that system, it's an additional $1.2 million of dead cap on top of it. So that's $21.2 million. If that guy isn't on the field for you, in addition to the 22 million that Drew Brees is already going to cost you and the 16 million that you have invested in, in Taysom Hill next season. So between the three of them, you're spending over $50 million and you want two of them to not be on the field. You can't do that. You can't do that. Like you can't subject yourself to that at all. And that's actually, that's closer to $60 million on top of that. So it's not, it's yeah, no, I I don't think that Michael Thomas gets traded. I think Michael Thomas is a new Orleans saint next season. I know Pat McAfee is, you know, gassing people up and things like that. I know Ian Rappaport always can't happen. Yeah. Ian, Ian Rappaport, his tweets are one thing. His appearances on the Pat McAfee show are an entirely different animal. And so, I, you know, you, you have to separate reality from fiction here. And the fact of the matter is that there's not really a conducive way to trade Michael Thomas, nor is there a viable reason to do so unless there truly is an absolute falling out between the team and the player. And for a player to say, I'm playing through a surgery, you know, a, a surgery necessary injury because I want to get this team and I want to get Drew Brees his his ring before he's out of here. It's tough for me to believe that the if there is any conflict, that it is deep enough of con- to be concerned about. So that leads us to Mr. Brees and Mr. Brees. Um, I'll let you uh, first before we get into the injury part. I'll let you address the finality, the end of what we. It, the injury revelations actually make it almost more certain to me that it's over. I think so too. Yeah, um, I think so too. But but how how did you feel about the end of this season in that regard, just watching the way it ended and then realizing that it's the end of his career? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because up until the Bucks game, there were a lot of things about him that actually looked pretty good. Like the arm strength was there. He was taking more shots downfield. His mobility was there. And, and so clearly the four weeks that he took – with the uh, with the the rib fractures and the collapsed lung, helped the shoulder, and then now this new injury that we've learned about, which is a torn fascia in his foot, which is foot injury. There, those are all you know. That's a new thing that was never reported. That was why never- are we learning this about from Brittany? And that's the interesting thing because I think I think there's a reality in which the team just learned about this from Brittany too. Like I'm curious about. I'm just saying I think that's a reality. I'm speculating because if a team knows about an injury, they're forced to report it. And with as as far under the microscope as the New Orleans Saints organization is at all times when it comes to league officials and everything like that, I don't believe that they would hide an injury. A torn rotator cuff and a torn fascia are right. not minor injuries. That not you at can- all that you can hide if, right. if those things are show, not showing up or the, if the Saints doctors either weren't testing Drew Brees, which I would be very surprised right. that they didn't do full exams on him prior to putting him back on the field in particular to make sure that his body was healed to a significant degree. Why wouldn't? And the physical tests that they put you through just to make sure your conditioning and all the movement and all those things. Right. It's surprising that you can come out now and say that those but tears, not strains, not pulls. Tears is what the, the word that was used. Right. That's significant. That is significant. It is very significant. So I'm curious about how much of it is what the uh, you know what the organization knew versus what they didn't. Things like that. I don't want to speculate on any of that because that could be like actual trouble. Mm-hmm. But that's not a good look if they knew about it and then didn't do anything and they put him on the field because it's his last ride or whatever. Like you've only made it more certain in that case. Right. And and like I want to appreciate Drew Brees, of course, for going out there and trying to play through all that. But you also have to question how effective are you able to be with those injuries? And are you actually a detriment to your team? Now, he continued to win games when he came back. So I don't think that that's true. So but but we also don't know the actual timeline of some of these injuries. We know the shoulder injury probably happened 
during the Bears game when he came back out and he had the kinesio tape on his right shoulder. We know that the shoulder was an issue for the games moving forward through there. And then the injury to the ribs started on week nine and then was too much to handle after the sack on week 10 against the 49ers. But at what point in all of that was the, 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 the foot injury and how much of that affected his early season versus his late season? We saw him be a lot more mobile in the later part of the seasons where he was escaping the pocket. He was extending plays, doing things you don't usually see Drew Brees do. And how much of that was how much of the injury was present at that time versus early on in the season? There's just things that we don't know yet. And I'll be interested to see what the details are of them. And, and again, like as much as I want to appreciate Drew Brees for playing through those things and really fighting for that, you know, last ride off into the sunset or whatever, it, that's a tough, tough thing. That's a tough pill to swallow in terms of what he had to go through to do that. Because in the scope of just a single game, and we've seen this before, we saw Tom Brady get knocked out the week before the AFC championship, the year that he won his first Super Bowl. Right. And Drew Bledsoe had to come off the bench, hadn't played the entire season since he had been hurt in week two against the Jets. Bledsoe comes off, they, they gut out the win in that game, and then he wins the AFC Championship. Remember, there was a controversy right. at the time as to whether or not Bledsoe should start the Super Bowl. Right. And they said, no, Brady's the starter if he's healthy. And he was healthy and he went. You can make the case that in this game, this when you got into the second quarter, and once that deficit was there, that it was it was time to go to the bullpen and that you had to see what you had because you were you were not advancing the ball with right. Drew Brees. And you could there was yeah, one throw in particular it. early in the second half. It's the Emmanuel Sanders throw. The Saints were backed up and it's from about the 23. Oh 25, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he and they and he completes it it's on, on the sideline. They get out to about the 40 yard line. And yep. Drew Brees put everything he had in that throw. <laughs> Right. I'm serious, like as you can yeah. see on his face yeah. when it was done, it was like, I mean, it was everything to make that throw, and it was not a dart. Right. And it was, and right then you could say, I mean, it just felt like eight minutes was not enough time for them to get ten points, and that is a weird feeling to have when you're yeah. talking about the Saints' offense. That eight minutes yeah. in the fourth quarter, you say, I don't think they have enough time to score twice. Right. And I honestly felt that. Yeah, I did too. I did too, and that was weird. It was weird to have that feeling. But I think that like, you know, the fumble earlier from Jared Cook for me was the moment where everything deflated. That was kind of that moment where everything just went away, like the defensive momentum, like all those things that we were talking about in terms of the energy being sucked out of the dome, everything like that. And, you know, I I don't believe it would have been any different had there been 73,000 fans there either. No, because the fan aspect really only helps you on the defensive side in terms of making it more complicated for the other team to communicate. And it's easy for you to communicate on the offensive side. And it's easy to communicate when you only got 3,750 people in a building, you know, or in an arena. And so the, the offensive inefficiencies that we've seen over the last three seasons in the playoffs, I don't feel like have anything to do with them being at home. You know what I mean? Like they're separate from that issue. I think being at home still gives you a home field advantage, but if you're not able to produce on the offensive side, very little does the dome have to do with that. And and when the defense is planting their feet 20 yards mm-hmm. from the line of scrimmage, when the safeties know we're not retreating, even right. if they go past this, I don't buy it. Like they, they right. know they're like, I don't buy it. Right. And, and those injuries, the, the amount of them, the, the, the fact that, yeah, that, I believe that that signifies that if he was willing to do that, and if, if those are all accurate to play through that, that he, you don't go through that if you've yeah. got another year in you. Right. Don't do right. it. Because you'd right. say, we got one more. We got one more. I can come back, be fresh, and I got one more. He knew right. he had nothing left. Right. But at the same time, it's like, what do you do with the last four years? When you write the last seven years when you write the history of the New Orleans Saints, the last decade, because you talk about a decade where they made it back to one NFC championship game, that in the last seven years, they have two playoff wins. Mm -hmm. Two. And and you have three losing records and the division championships are fine, but you never put it all together again. And for the Minnesota, the Minneapolis, Minnesota miracle, whatever, for the, the no call for the last two years of just offensive, inexplicit, poor performance. It's, it's, it is going to feel 
kind of hollow. It's not the fact that he had a bad performance to end it. Because no. Dan Marino no. was way worse in his last game. Oh. <laughs> of his career, you know. Yeah. It was embarrassingly yeah. bad. Um, you know, we've seen this where guys just went out. It, I don't care that I mean, it, usually Brett Favre's last game was a bad game. He got replaced by right. Joe. It's right. Not that he played yeah. The, it just it yeah, feels like seven years. That's the tough part. Yeah, that's the that's the tough pill to swallow. Is that over the last four years they're the winningest team to ever not win a Super Bowl. You know what I mean? They, and then you have the three seven and to not and even seasons, get there. Which, like that's yeah. not even to not win. You, you don't. That's even right. Get you didn't there. even appear. You didn't even get there. And so you know you look at the the three seven and nine seasons with all the context around how bad the defense was, the team structure was, the culture was, everything about that. Those three teams was just ill fit for an NFL right. field and to be competitive. So you missed on those three seasons, not because you're Drew Brees, but because the organization made some bad choices. Yeah, they made bad choices. And then 2017, when your 2015 class actually kicked in, you changed the culture, you changed everything. You you over you overhaul the roster, you overhaul the 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 coaching staff, and then all of a sudden you're back in in the playoffs. You know, you're 11 and five. You're back in the playoffs. You look like this damn good team. 2018, which I think was the best team that they have put on the field in the in the last 15 years. I might say 10 years. Yeah. Probably. You know, I mean, it might've uh, been better I think, than I think the Super Bowl team. Talent I think it was better. I think it, yeah, yeah. I think it was the best team that Drew Brees and Peyton, and Sean Peyton had during their tenure in New Orleans for sure in 2018. And so that was like, that's the one I think that's most disappointing because it was so far out of anybody's control. Excuse me. It was so far out of the New Orleans Saints control. That was just this horrific situation that everyone I think fears happening, but never believed would happen and all. But then you still have to look at, you know, moments earlier in the game where, again, the offense was flat to start. You know, you have dropped touchdowns in the end zone, things like that. But all well, you all, also have that you go to overtime to me, and you throw a pick like you get right, the ball like in overtime still, and you throw a pick. Yeah, like there's still all these other parts too. I don't want to. I don't want to reduce no, the importance no. of that flag not being thrown. You know what I mean? Because that flag gets thrown and the game is over. That's it. You know. And so I think that like all of that is is, is so. That's the toughest pill to swallow. I think. But I think above all else, look. You know, immediately right now, once Drew Brees does make the official announcement that he's going to retire then you'll see all the people run to the podium to yell, I told you so, and all these other things about like, he's been washed for X, Y, and Z and all this other stuff. And that's fine. Like those people will, will get their stuff out. But I think that Drew Brees' career, I think that his, his tenure in the NFL will be remembered fondly as one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. And it's hard to argue against that. You can argue whether or not he was ever the best in a particular season, it's a hard argument to make because of the fact that he also coexisted with Tom Brady. Uh, and it's Aaron Rodgers and Peyton well, Manning. And you know, like, Aaron, there's a lot of overlaps with some elite. Yeah, yeah. You know. But the, the Aaron Rodgers thing, I think you have the argument for because 2011 is when Aaron Rodgers won the MVP over um, over Drew Brees, if I remember well, I'm just saying for the totality and, of his career, it's like – you, you basically were going up against it's like being a shortstop when it was a rod jeter and Nomar. sure yeah, you know yeah. what i mean like yeah. you, no matter yeah. how good you are you're you, it's that it's hard to get into that group and yeah the national the, conversation was manning brady and then rogers as the as the guy and right. drew was always the guy who's just out of that group right and and i think that so what i was what i was mentioning with the mvp race is that you look at an earlier point where Drew Brees didn't win the MVP because of Peyton Manning, mm-hmm. and you look at the criteria by which Peyton Manning won that MVP. If you look at the 2011 season between Brees and Rodgers, if it would have been judged by the same criteria, Drew Brees would have won that MVP. And so that mm-hmm. was the that's the one season where you can argue, well, if the goalposts were the same, right. then you probably would have had a moment where you could have said, Drew Brees was the best that season. And of course, there's very little competition from Tom Brady in that conversation in that particular season as well. So so I do think that Drew Brees has that claim at one point, at one point, but it doesn't come without a caveat, which of course 
lends itself to the conversation. So I do think that his career will be remembered fondly. I think he should be remembered as one of the best quarterbacks to play the game. Even if you want to caveat it to regular season statistics, whatever it is that makes, you know, makes it most comfortable for everybody, whatever. But I do think that overall, you look at the success of the New Orleans Saints in that the worst possible season that they had were these seven and nine seasons with historically bad defenses. Uh, and that the worst part of the worst part of this whole tenure to relive still includes four straight playoff appearances and four straight division titles, which any NFL franchise would kill for, you know? So, so I do think that there are, there's a lot of layers to the conversation around Drew Brees, but above all else, his contributions to the franchise are, are undeniable. Yes. And, and there's another time to have the more nuanced discussion about his legacy. And we have the time to do that. And, and we'll do that. Yep. Like, like you said, when it's, when, when he does make the announcement official, then that right. we'll do something on that, just on that. I think it deserves it. It deserves mm-hmm. a singular focus to talk about the entire portion of his legacy, good, bad, and ugly. Um, and there are right. all, all those elements in all, in all of us, in all of us. There are all of them. Play. All of them. Yeah, so, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but yeah, so, um, the season is over, um, the, at least the playing part, but now a very different season begins. Uh, some Saints will have to re- replace some coaches, obviously. Um, they will have to replace some front office people. They will have to replace some talent. Uh, and, and it's going to be um, a, another wild off season to see what Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton can put together. Uh, before I let you go, the odd, again, for Saints, Saints fans who are really caught up on this Deshaun Watson thing, and I don't see how that happens either. There are so many teams with far better packages. Um, the Saints can't afford Deshaun Watson's contract, um, quite frankly, unless, again, right. because of all the dead money that they do have. And I think that it's far more negotiable. I and mean, you and I have talked about this guy, and you came up on Twitter again. Matthew Stafford, if you're going for a veteran target outside of Jameis Winston, is the most gettable quarterback, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, you have to look to it. Deshaun Watson, not just because I think the the conversation that will always be had is that Deshaun Watson next season in terms of his cap hit is less than that of Taysom Hill. Taysom Hill probably won't sit at that $16 million cap hit. He'll probably get extended or restructured or whatever. But when it comes down to, you know, Deshaun Watson, the question again is not 2021. It's Mm -hmm. 2022, 2023 and how the TV deal affects the salary cap versus probably not having full attendance in the stands throughout the 2021 season. Maybe I'm less optimistic on that than, than some people are. Maybe I'm too I still can't not see, optimistic enough. Full, full stadiums yeah. in the fall. I can't imagine. So, yeah. And so I, I just think that when it comes down to all of that, you, you have to understand, you have to look at beyond just 2021. And you have to look at, like you mentioned, there are several teams out there that can make far more desirable packages in terms of draft capital and players that they can expend because they're in a rebuild, which the New Orleans Saints are not in the middle of, that make it a lot more appealing for Houston. Because remember, the other party has to say yes. It's not just about can Mickey Loomis make the money work. The other party, the Houston Texans, have to say yes. And I know that Deshaun Watson has a no-trade clause, but he can't force anybody into any situations because the players don't have leverage anymore. There's All no he can say out. is no. And that's yeah. but the, the the number of teams that can that he has to say yes to is very limited. And right. so yeah, you can have your no trade clause, but if you want out, you gotta take the best of what's available yeah, or you're staying. Exactly right. And to me, Miami, Jacksonville, the Jets, and now maybe even Indianapolis, since Philip Rivers mm-hmm. is retiring. Right. There are those teams all have more picks. Yep. more cap space to, to absorb stuff and to give, give up something. And they each have a young quarterback in return that they could give away. Cause they could, you could say, I'll give you Jacoby Brissett. I'll right. give you to a tile of two of I can mm-hmm. give you Sam Darnold along with multiple first round picks right. this year and first round picks in years to come. The Saints yeah. can't are not in a position to do any of that. No, not at all. Not at all. And you can even look at other teams too. The Falcons have a better package they could put together. The Panthers yeah, have a better package Matt they Ryan could put together. And, and, mm-hmm. yeah, stuff, yeah. The the Raiders have a better package they could put there are so many teams that have better packages that they could put together because of the fact that they can give you a bridge quarterback for your to help you get to your future. And even if it's limping to the future, they could help you do that. The Saints they can't do that. Trading Taysom Hill is not an appealing offer. 
you know what I mean? Taysom Hill works in Sean Payton's system, but there's no guarantee that he works anywhere else. And so it's it's challenging. And certainly for a team like Detroit, excuse me, excuse me, for a team like um, for a team like Houston, who right now doesn't have an innovator to do any of that. It's tough to try to try to bank your do thing on that. So for for Deshaun Watson, as much as I would love it, I'm not gonna lie. Like I would love having Deshaun Watson, see, see Deshaun Watson be yeah. a, a quarterback and all this. But when it comes down to what is actually viable, the the Saints just don't have it. The Saints just simply don't have it. Um, we will go through so much more of this through the offseason. Senior Bowl coming up soon. Scouting, obviously, will there be hires to talk about? Um, but we want to give everybody the opportunity to go and check out um, the inauguration events, however you want to watch them and enjoy those things. So, um, Ross, first tell folks what you do have coming up this week, any um, extra things, because the season now changes for you, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have to jump into off-season mode. I'm going to do one more deep dive and look at the uh, the Saints 2020 season to wrap up this week over at Locked on Saints, which is the podcast you can get every Monday through Friday. So there'll be elements of that in Friday and Thursday's episodes uh, starting up tomorrow. Today, did a bunch of fan questions, talked about the future, talked a little bit about Drew Brees' injuries, all the other stuff, as well as all the coaching changes and everything and possible um, possible targets to to fill in those continue to keep up to date with all that because there's potential that more coaching changes can go through i'll actually i'm planning on being at the senior bowl i might chicken out and stay home (laughs) and cover it virtually uh but i you know so there'll be a lot of coverage either way there'll be a lot of senior bowl coverage and everything going on i know a lot of people are interested in in particular mac jones the quarterback out of alabama so i plan to get a pretty good look at him there um and get some questions to them and everything and kind of kind of get a read on them and and more uh you know we have a lot more coming up over there as well as more over at canal street chronicles i'll still be here every wednesday of course uh for the dome patrol and you can follow me on twitter at ross jackson nola n-o-l-a to keep up with all of it and you know how to follow me at dm grub on twitter and um instagram and of course the website h-i-t-p with dg.com another great one and like I said, we'll be back again to do this next week. Y'all enjoy the day. Try to find some happiness in it. I know it, like yes. said, I don't want, us to, want you to feel like it's a downer. It is a start of something new, and that always brings with right. it opportunity. Um, let's, and let's try to take advantage of it. Let's try to continue to put pressure on our elected officials. Let's continue to try to understand that this is not a finish line. This is just out of the gate on a new race. And so let's go start right. doing that race again. And um, and to all of y'all, have a great week. This has been the Dome Patrol on Hard Attack.